Okay, we are back and better than ever, and we're going to take a look at Ravi Zacharias being interviewed by Ben Shapiro. Ravi put in uh, a, a great showing on this one, as he normally does in, in all his appearances, but this one was, was particularly good and will help us to understand some of the philosophical reasons behind the, the necessity of God, um, the reasons for God, the logic of God, as uh, Ravi's latest book. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. I see if you take a car and drown a muck in a crowd of people and kill them, can you blame General Motors for it? Some will say, that's not why I fashioned this car. It was for transportation. So we've run amok in what we have done with our values, and then we blame the Creator for it. All right, so, um, so I let... Uh, the last episode ride two weeks. I uh, went on vacation, and uh, I'm back now. Uh, thank you for welcoming me back. So hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll get to some uh, some some good stuff here. I'm really happy that I that I came across this interview with ben, uh, with Ravi Zacharias from Ben Shapiro. Um, interesting that he's one of the most uh, requested <clears throat> uh, people to to appear on the Sunday special for Ben Shapiro. And uh, Ravi put in a great, a great showing. Very, very helpful interview. Really lay, uh, laid out a, a, a number of points that that we want to go through this time, and just kind of keep reinforcing, you know, this this whole notion of uh, why we need God's voice. That's uh, I think that's really what's being hovered around here, and. Uh, they really bring out that point here on on Shapiro's Sunday special. Uh, we, there's been a couple of. Christian apologists, uh, you know, a couple of Christian pastors on Shapiro's show, and I, I, to be honest, I haven't been real thrilled with them. You know, especially the MacArthur interview. You guys remember us reviewing that some time ago? Just, uh, d- yeah, just didn't feel like he really put forth the best interview. But, but uh, Zacharias actually does a pretty, pretty decent job here, and so we're going to walk through that. But before we do, let me welcome everyone listening uh, to us on. KNNA The Cross in Nebraska. Thank you all for having us and continuing to have us on KNNA The Cross. Also, let me direct you to themessedupchurch.com. That is Steve Kozar and all of us there. There's just a wealth of resources there on American evangelicalism and and, and Christianity. Uh, and it's just a, a resource uh, among resources. And so I, w- I would recommend that you go there. You can get our, you can get our podcast for free uh, on messedupchurch.com. We've we've got our players put up there, and, and you can go to themessedupchurch.com. Just do a search for layman's terms, and you'll and you'll find our podcast there. However, we uh, would also like to encourage you to go to laymanstermsradio.org and uh, sub- subscribe in, in in a sort of way. And you know, I've been thinking about Patreon. You know, I know there's light up some political stuff surrounding Patreon and that sort of thing, but I, I really don't care about that. That that may be the route we need to go because. What we'd like you to do is donate five, ten, or fifteen dollars per episode. And I know there's enough of us out there that if you did that toward our Kenya Well project, five, ten, or fifteen dollars. If you donated that, we could get this well drilled very easily. We're trying to drill a freshwater well uh, for Kibos Hope Academy in in Kenya, <clears throat> Kibos, Kenya. And you can do that, or you can also go to our Go GoFundMe and donate um, donate. Uh, a one-time fifty-dollar gift is kind of what we're looking for. Given, you know, given our numbers, if every you know if everybody participated and donated a one-time fifty-dollar gift, we'd have it done too. Um, and then there's some of you out there that are just insane. Like we had one listener donate five hundred dollars recently, and you know who you are. 
and I'm not going to mention your name because I don't think you want your name mentioned, but we really appreciate that sort of thing. And so, um, please donate to this project. We're, we're, we're keeping it going. We've, we've, we've been on this track for over a year now and we're going to stick with it. We're going to help this school. We're going to help this school. And I, that, that's one reason why that it just made, it was almost kind of like, kind of like a relief because I was thinking about, well, you know, should I try to make the podcast something that, um, is part-time income or, you know, try to do it full, you know, it, you know, pushing toward doing it full time or something of that nature. And it just dawned on me. No, why, why do that? I have, I have a perfectly decent job driving trucks. Um, I do this podcast. It helps me to think, helps me to work out things. And then I just share it with you guys. You get something out of it. And then, you know, and then could we make some money off of it for, for a good cause? And this is what, this is what came to me. My church mate, Monica Cholo came to me and said, Hey, let's do this. Um, and, and so we're doing it. And I really hope you'll participate because it's not cool that that uh, a- African school children who are trying to learn the Bible and the Lutheran Catechism uh, have to haul water in between, uh, mem- you know, memorizing the Ten Commandments or doing their math mathematics or learning how to to write. It's just not that's not a good thing, and um, and we could help them with that if we could get get our heads together and fund this well project. So please donate in some way, shape, manner, or form to our Kenya Well Well Project. Okay, so we're going to get to um, the interview between Ben Shapiro and Ravi Zacharias. Again, Zacharias puts in a, a great showing. Normally, sp- generally speaking, he does. He He's just um, spot on most of the time. There, there's hardly a time where I see Zacharias. I mean, there's some times where I see Zacharias and I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe not. Uh, but but for but for the most part, when Zacharias speaks, he's he's got it, um, and 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 that's that's certainly the case here. And I and I wanted to review that as a, just a really good example of uh, the kind of apologetics that Christians should be putting forth. Um, and really, and I'm, all I'm going to do is is do some translating here. You know, we are in layman's terms. I'm going to put some of what Zacharias says in layman's terms. I think that's important to do. Um, and I'm also going to. Uh, you know, just just add to or clarify what what Zacharias is is talking about, and show that you know what we've been talking about here. You know, f- for going on however long we've been talking about apologetics, <coughs> is um, it, you know, is the is the way to go with this stuff. Uh, it, you know, again, you know, I've I've got the PhD from the School of Hard Knocks, and I learned all this stuff the hard way, and we're going to help you not hopefully to learn it the hard way here on this episode with uh, Ben Shapiro, Ravi Zacharias. Here we go. The one thorn in the side of the theistic framework is the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And I think what someone once said, virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists of mankind. I think it's the most real question, frankly. And many of the philosophers who ultimately, David Hume himself, you know, did away with the notion of a sovereign first cause. Uh, for them, this was the thorny question. So to me, how can an all-powerful and an all-sovereign God uh, and an all-good God allow so much of pain and suffering in this world? I think it's a legitimate question, but that's the one. Today, it's much more cultural issues, uh, so many things that you've dealt with. Uh, I think the relevance of uh, a moral law that the Christian worldview invokes, 
that we are not just beings intended to reason, but reason morally. Uh, that, those are the debates, I think, the two issues, and I think they are connected. So let's talk about the problem of suffering and pain. Okay. Obviously, there have been a, a, a bunch of religious thinkers who have yeah. taken this on. It's always puzzling to me when you hear secular humanists and atheists suggest that it's a revelation that this is a, yeah. a problem for religious thought. Obviously, it's yeah. been a problem for religious thought since the very yeah. beginning. What do you think is the is the best answer to that very difficult question? Well, uh, you know, Job is the one who wrestled with it the most. Job, to me, came up with a very incredible answer. And that's, to me, a softer touch today, but I think a profound touch for those of us who have that knowledge of God. To him, when he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, now I see, have seen you, I abhor myself, and I'm horrified, and he repented. That relationship with God, same as with uh, Habakkuk, you know, they struggled with these issues, but that divine encounter gave them a pair of eyes so that they could see to the problem from a very different perspective. God is, God acts. God changes. That's what Habakkuk came up with, you know, the actuality of God in distinction to atheism, the eventuality of his working in distinction to deism, and the eternality of his perspective in distinction to, to pantheism. So the question itself is well answered within the Judeo-Christian worldview. But I think as a culturally relevant apologist, this is the way I deal with it, Ben, and I found it to be quite effective because the, the wheels start turning. I was at the University of Nottingham years ago when it was first thrown at me. And a guy stood up and he just said, how can you possibly talk of a good God, of goodness, when there's so much evil in this world? How can you talk about a God that actually exists in this kind of evil and this kind of suffering? And that, of course, Richard Dawkins uh, and all of them raised the same. So I looked at him and I said, let me ask you this. You're talking about evil? He said, yes. I said, when you say this evilly, aren't you assuming that such a thing is good? He said, yes. I said, when you say that such a thing is good, aren't you assuming that such a thing is a moral law by which to distinguish between good and evil? He paused for a moment on that one. And then I referenced him to Bertrand Russell's debate with Copleston, in which Copleston looked at Russell and said to him, how do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said the same way I differentiate between blue and green. And uh, Copleston said, but wait a minute. You differentiate between those colors by seeing, don't you? He said, yes. He said, how do you differentiate between good and bad, Mr. Russell? He paused and he said, on the basis of my feeling, what else? I think that was the weakest point of Russell's debate. So when I looked at him, he said, all right, I will agree to you that there is a moral law, the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. I said, evil, therefore good. Good, therefore a moral law, the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. I said, but if you posit a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver, but that's whom you are trying to disprove and not prove. So when Zacharias talks about the, nece the necessity of a moral lawgiver, uh, but let's lay that out. Why, why do we necessarily need a moral lawgiver? Well, this is what I've always talked about when we need God's voice. Otherwise, the feelings of Bertrand Russell become the authority. That is exactly what Zacharias is saying here. That if there if there is a differenti differentiation between good and evil, then who gets to make that distinction and on what basis? And that's why Zacharias pointed out that Russell's argument was was incredibly weak because it was based on his feelings. It was based on what he judged to be good 
and evil. And so, therefore, we're going to proceed in this world based on what Bertrand Russell feels is good and evil. That's a problem. That's why we need the moral lawgiver. We need a third party, an objective third party, where you've got Zacharias on one side saying, no, no, this is these are the moral values to which we should adhere. And you've got Bertrand Russell or whoever else might be questioning him about uh, evil in the world or morality or any of these things. You have two differing opinions. You've got two people coming and saying, well, I think it's immoral that we kill babies before they are born. And you've got another person saying, no, I don't think it's immoral that we kill babies before they are born. Who, who uh, gets to arbitrate that? You need a third, a, a third objective party who gets to arbitrate that. And interestingly enough... As we have walked through the several hundred years of the Enlightenment, as I've said in many other podcasts before, what ends up happening is as we reason through these moral questions, what happens is they end up aligning with the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Okay, so that's one thing. The one point I wish Zacharias would have would have brought out here, which I think um, is, is evidence through Lutheran theology. Okay, I'm a Lutheran. I'll admit I've got that presupposition, that bias. However, um, Lutheran theology emphasizes God's love, not God's sovereignty so much. God, we we do believe God is sovereign, but we, but we emphasize God's love. And here's and here's kind of how this works in this situation. So uh, Lutherans emphasize God's love in the fact that. Um, the, the way to explain suffering is that Christ suffered. And a servant is not above his master. Simple as that. That's our argument. That's, that's, our, that's our theot. That's, that's Lutheran theodicy in a nutshell. That, yes, we experience suffering here on this earth. But that the Lord God of the universe came down, shrunk himself into the womb of a virgin, was born, lived, died, rose again and ascended into heaven and suffered with us. He and a servant is not above his master. So if if God suffers with us in our suffering, that there's there is a tremendous amount of comfort in that. There there should be. That God doesn't just doesn't stand aloof to all of the suffering. He is the God who is with those who suffer. So indeed, when you when, when you look at the suffering in the world, that's where God is. You want to see where God is working in the world? He's working in the suffering. And so, you know, why doesn't he just eliminate the suffering? Why doesn't he just, you know, that's, you know, atheist, Bertrand Russell, you know, if I was God, I would do it this way. Well... I would refer you to the great prophet, and I don't remember who the great prophet who produced or directed or wrote this film was, but Bruce Almighty. Go watch Bruce Almighty. If you want a really good theodicy, go watch Bruce Almighty. Because you will see there that when a human being thinks that they can do things better than God, it proves to be pretty disastrous. And so, um, yeah, I like that. It's, 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 it's a modern 
version of the book of Job, which Zacharias referenced. And finally, at the end of that book, famously, God says, Where were you when I created? Where were you when I did this? Can you do this? Can you do that? You're a human being. I'm God. And at some point, at the end of the day, in our theodicy, we have to come to some sort of fideism to say that, well, God is God and we're not. Otherwise, we have to come to the conclusion, if we're, if we're going to say, there, well, there is no God, then we have to say, well, then Bertrand Russell is Bertrand Russell. Sam Harris is Sam Harris. Richard Dawkins is Richard Dawkins, and we're not. Somebody's going to take that place. See, there has to be a moral lawgiver. That's the point here. Your whole point is invoking a moral law, which you cannot invoke without a moral lawgiver. So your problem of evil actually disappears with the false assumptions that you're making. Do you know, Ben, he paused and he looked at me and he said, what then am I asking you? I was with William Lane Craig, whom you uh, had on your program. William Lane Craig and I were on a program with a physicist by the name of Bernard Lycan and a pantheist by the name of Jitendra Mohanty, sponsored by Emory University years ago. And this was thrown back at me. Why do you need to posit a moral law giver? All right, we'll grant you there is this abstract moral law. Why do you need to posit a moral law giver? And my answer is this, Ben. Every time the problem of evil is raised, it is either raised by a person or about a person, which means the questioner assumes persons have intrinsic worth. And that is an assumption they cannot make in a random evolutionary universe with no primary mind and personal being as our creator. So if we have the random collocation of atoms, how do we attribute essential worth to ourselves? So the person component is vital to the question. And so the moral law needs a moral law giver if persons are to have essential worth. So to me, the problem of evil when it is raised is a self-stultifying problem because it has to assume a framework that it cannot arrogate to itself in a random universe without personal value. All right, another very good point here by, by Zacharias. Essentially what he's saying is that Individual worth is is critical here. And who assigns that? Does the fact that an individual has worth, has value as an individual, where does that come from? Is it is it assigned by the state? Is the fact that you or I are infinitely valuable? get that value assigned to us by someone saying we believe that all men are created and endowed with certain rights, inalienable rights by by the creator. Is that where that comes from? Just because the state makes that dictate? Or is it that indeed from the beginning human beings are assigned infinite worth? by a third party. See, because it does it doesn't do any good for Sam Harris to come along and say, "Well, we can all agree in his moral landscape that ultimate suffering is bad, and so therefore, 
we're going to give human beings worth because ultimate suffering is bad and we should think we want people to have ultimate flourishing. That should be our ethic. Is is that the truth because Sam Harris says so? And, and, and how can he objectify that? How can he say that, well, this is something that is that is just true outside of ourselves without invoking someone who is putting this value and worth on human beings. See, we've explored this many times. If God is the one who gives value to individuals, to human beings, then that's something that is irrevocable, incontestable. If the Lord God of the universe is the one who gives value to human beings, then that is indisputable. You can't, no one can take that away. They can try, and that's where violence comes from. That's where evil, that's where sin, that's where suffering comes from, is when human beings try to revoke what God has given. See, and that's what Zacharias is saying here. Okay, let's continue on. How do we get from the idea of the, the moral lawgiver and a God who is present in the universe to what exactly that moral law is? So there's sort of the God of the philosophers. This has obviously puzzled a lot of, right. of religious philosophers. Right. There's the God of the philosophers, the sort of unmoved mover, the, the, the being that, that generates a unity to the universe and an order to the universe. How does that translate over into the sort of moral law that we practice or that we should practice? Can you just do all of this on the basis of, of reason alone, just looking at the universe through natural law, or do you need something like revelation? I think that's a great question. In your book, I think you have brilliantly given that dialectic of your, you know, reason and purpose and meaning. Uh, they are inextricably bound, and you really cannot have one without the other. Uh, the way we get to it is uh, something like this. I do two frameworks on this, Ben, as an apologist uh, dealing with the Judeo-Christian worldview. We all need to know the truth. Ultimately, we are in search for the truth, you know, where we need to accept the fact. But what, how do we get to the truth? And philosophers of old have told us there's the correspondence theory of truth and the coherence theory of truth. Correspondence applies to particular statements. Coherence applies to a cumulative presentation of those statements. So when you go to a court of law, the correspondence and coherence theory are always brought to bear in determining guilt or innocence. But how do we get to it? I say there are three ways of logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Is my argument logically consistent? Is there any empirical basis for me to believe what I'm believing? And is there any experiential relevance to all of this? But then this has to be applied to the four questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where do I come from? What does my life really mean? How do I distinguish between good and evil? What happens to a human being when he or she dies? That closing chapter in your conversation with your daughter is brilliant, you know. The question of eternality even comes into the mind of a little one. There's that intuitive drive towards that. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Pursuit, truth. 
correspondence, coherence, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. When you form a worldview, these are the four questions you have to answer by applying the notions of truth. So with the moment you say the word revelation, you know, ah, this is one of those dinosaurs who actually believes a book dropped out of heaven and so on and so forth. It's not as simplistic as that. You take the revelation of God that has come across a millennium and a half of revelation. You apply these tests and you see that the existence of God presents a framework for the existentially undeniable questions that we struggle with. Those very questions are legitimized because of the value that we lay claim. So yes, there's reason and revelation, but not some kind of pie in the sky by and by, but propositional truth that is put to the test by a scrutinizing mind. And the Judeo-Christian worldview, Ben, I believe, I was raised in a counterculture to this. I wasn't raised in either of those uh, worldviews. I was a naturalist. I was a skeptic. And I ended up on a bed of suicide when I was 17 years old, desperately looking for the very thing your book talks about, you know, that individual value and that individual purpose and a belongingness to a community and so on. And it was then when the Bible, I couldn't even hold the Bible, by the way, because I was, my body was dehydrated. I had uh, taken some poison that uh, emptied me of all the water, moisture in my body. And then to see how God, through the flow of history, and of course, even though we have our differences, we have a common background in communion with God. Both of us have that goal. And in the person of Jesus Christ, I found that answer. And so my relationship to the person of God, as Job pointed out, as Habakkuk pointed out, that relationship is key because some answers to life transcend the propositional nature of things. They don't violate it, but they transcend it. So I think you get to the answer of who God is, not just by some leap of faith, uh, which we sometimes attribute to people. Mine was a very reasoned study of scriptures, and the reasoning that we applied was a rational type, but the importance was there was a moral reasoning behind the whole process. So you don't just get to it by either reason or revelation. It's the confluence of both in proper balance. This is Zachariah saying we need God's voice. Plain and simple. We need a third party arbiter between the conflicting parties to say this is this is what is ultimately right. I like to think of it this way, and I'm not sure I've used this illustration before, but think about this. Imagine if we were able to go forth in a time machine two thousand years in the future, and we were able to have the scientific knowledge of those that were ahead of us 2,000 years. What, what value would we find in that? We might bring something back that I could hand to Sam Harris and say, here, look, you know, there's, here's, here's the science from 2,000 years in the future. And Sam Harris might say, well, that, some of this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I'm reminded of that movie, if you saw it, it it's called Contact. It's got Jodie Foster in it. Um, where an alien race actually makes contact with the earth and there's instructions embedded in this uh, transmission of information to earth about how to build a spacecraft to contact 
this alien race. And one, and one thing that doesn't make any sense to the scientists in putting this together is in, in the spacecraft, there's no um, seat belt, there's no seat, there's no anything uh, that would hold the traveler in place. And when Foster, and, and they just kind of discount that. They, thought, they think, well, maybe we've misunderstood. We just, you know, we're going to put this seat in this spacecraft and we're going to give her harnesses and, and, this sorts of, and that sort of thing. Um, and, the, and, uh, and then when the spacecraft takes off, um, the, the seat and the harnesses, they all start to completely fall apart. They, they just break, you know, just break apart. And fortunately, Foster, who is the, Foster's character, who is the, is the traveler, just floats in this spacecraft um, and, and the harnesses were ne- never needed in the first place. Something they didn't understand, didn't make sense to them. And what we're finding, and I keep hearkening back to this particular podcast with Joe Rogan and the Weinsteins, uh, particularly Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, where they talk about how uh, traditional se- sexual ethics are actually the most fulfilling for a per- for a person see that's the thing that's what Zacharias is getting after here is that we have the, vo- the revelation is the voice of the eternal speaking to us about what is actually true that's what revelation is that third party that's going to mediate between the debaters and we need that. We absolutely need that. And that's the point that Zacharias is making here is that at, 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 the, at the end of the day, we need God's voice. We need God. We need revelation. We need a third party who is uh, authoritatively above the two debating entities that are disagreeing on a certain subject. We need another voice to come in and say, okay, you may not see this. You may see this. Doesn't matter. What I'm saying is, this is what is true, and we need that. Otherwise, Sam Harris, Bertrand Russell, David Hume, become that voice, and that's and then that's a very that's a very dangerous area in which to uh, exist as human beings, because if that's the case. If Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, David Hume, whoever else, are the one who are the ones who assign worth to human beings, then somebody else can come along and very easily make the case that, uh, yeah, well, there are some human beings that have worth, but there are there are, on the other hand, there are some who don't have worth. Let's see, that's the problem. Okay, so we need the the basic point that Zacharias is making here is we need God's voice. We've got to have revelation in order to sort these things out. All right, let's move on. The Judeo-Christian moral law, one of the questions that I get from folks like Sam Harris or like Michael Shermer is, all right, let's assume that there is this this eternal moral law that corresponds with some form of eternal truth and, and a lawgiver. 
So why has that law evolved over time? So to take, for example, the, the example that they like best is slavery. So originally the Bible contemplates that slavery is part of life. And then over time, we've decided that not only is slavery a part, not a part of life, slavery is a grave evil that ought to be fought wherever it exists. How do, how do we justify evolution in the Judeo-Christian framework of morality? Well, it's, of course, the metaphysical extrapolation of the naturalistic interpretation of the very origin of life. So when you talk about the evolution of humanity itself, they want to talk about uh, morality itself also sort of evolving. I think it becomes a circular argument. The argument that somehow we were valueless to start with and just happened to be on this radar screen of time and that we developed all these things over a period of time, I think is a false view of the beginnings. In fact, though, you know very well as a, as a scholar within the Jewish framework, the very concept of slavery, very different, very different idea of what we interpret as, as what slavery is all about. And when you talk about Paul talking about how to treat the, quote, slave in the household and that he was willing to be there present and even redeem this person in a socioeconomic framework that you have these kinds of terms used and, and systems used, we are bound to make blunders. So then I would turn the question on its head and say... We've done multiple episodes on Exodus 21 and slavery in the Bible and compared it to uh, recent chattel slavery in the West. And that's precisely what Zacharias is talking about here. He doesn't go into detail about it. He doesn't have time to. But slavery in the Bible is not what we think of as slavery. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes where we go through Exodus 21 and how slavery is... Slavery is not slavery as we know it in the West. You know, 18th or 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century chattel slavery in the West is not what is talked about in Holy Scripture. It's just not there. That's essentially what Zacharias is saying, and it's important that he's pointing this out. All right, if you believe that we have evolved more morally, why is it in the 20th century that we killed more people in warfare than all of the previous 19th centuries put together? So it is not an honest representation of how we have actually come into believing in moral framework. In fact, there are some things now that we have reversed over 5,000 years of civilized history. For thousands of years, some people never believed some of the things that we have begun to believe. So I would say that, to me, the most important phrase, Ben, in the Ten Commandments, I don't believe there's a better moral framework that starts with the very being of God and all the way to my to the sacredness of my life, my neighbor's life, my neighbor's marriage, my neighbor's property. I mean, this goes back, you know, to 3,500 years ago. The most important phrase to me, Ben, and that is, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That redemption is prior to righteousness. Now, this is something that's near and dear to my heart as a Lutheran because uh, there's talk among us Lutherans about the Ten Commandments or the Ten Sayings. And there's debate between uh, those of the Protestant Reformation. Now, 
the, the Lutherans retained the numbering of the Ten Commandments basically according to the Romanists. So, for instance, the Fifth Commandment for, for Lutherans is thou shalt not murder. That's the Sixth Commandment for Protestants. Okay, this, the Sixth Commandment for, for Protestants is thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the Seventh Commandment for Protestants. And what has been proposed is that perhaps, and so 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 the Protestants can uh, ferret out two commandments in the beginning about idolatry, and uh, so they, so they make four commandments about God. the The Roman Catholics, the Church historic. Let's face it the Rom- the Roman Church is the Church historic. Made three commandments out of those. Okay. And then the remaining seven about the neighbor. The Protestants came along and made, no, 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 there's four commandments there. And the the remaining six are about the neighbor. They conflate the last two, the ninth and tenth. And so what's been proposed uh, with Lutheran teachers is that really the first saying of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That, That is the first saying that... The first saying of the Ten Commandments is that is redemption. I like that. So the first commandment is, I saved you. Now, because I saved you, here's how you should live. So the the so then all the, then all the, the the commandments would align, which is really what Zacharias is saying here. It's pretty interesting. All right. I like that. Let's let's uh, move on from here. And righteousness leads on to worship. So when you get to Exodus 20 and you're dealing with that beautiful moral law, and then you move five chapters later and you move into the tabernacle and the framework of reference, I think it is the change of heart that is the only answer to the moral framework. And, here- and that's precisely why I like this. Because it is it is salvation that takes the heart of stone that is man's heart and changes it and proceeds to make that man want to obey the commands set forth in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of of Egypt. I saved you. Therefore, I want you to live this way. And when you understand that, and when you're grateful for that, and when you experience that as a Christian, then you do want to live according to God's commands. You become disillusioned with trying to live according to your own commands. And you hope there's something higher. And God comes along and says, I saved you. This is how you should live. Even if it doesn't make sense to you sometimes, this is how you should live. There's a scary thing. God did not send us his message to make bad people good. Morality alone will never save us. Sometimes in the name of morality, people have done some horrible things. It is the fact that 
The heart is in need of redemption, in need of forgiveness, and it is redemption that must precede righteousness. So to talk about morality having been involved when you go back 3,500 years ago and the moral law is given to us, it was because people had already violated that relationship with God. So I say, as far from morality evolving, right from the beginning we have known what it was all about. So what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis happens in this world every day. What happened in the temptation saga, Ben, I think is very critical. And your book points out what has happened as a result of this flaw, okay? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That's the word of God. But the enemy of our souls comes and says, uh-uh, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. That has been the battle for millennia. What is the battle? To allow God to be God or to play God. And in the defining good of evil, and what happened when they are confronted? I didn't. Go on, you believe. I didn't, the serpent. This idea of violating the authority of God and becoming autonomous and then blaming everything else, this has not evolved. This goes back over three millennia long, and we have challenged it every day in this victim culture. What are we doing? It's not my fault. It's this person's fault. We don't believe in absolutes. We have autonomy. So on the one hand, we claim to be autonomous, but when we go wrong, we blame somebody else. It's someone else's normal. So I, d- I do not accept this idea that it is some- somehow evolved. You go back millennia ago, and you see the value of human life and the value of a moral law millennia back. This is Zacharias at his best in this interview, in my opinion. Um, talk about how morality has evolved. No, it hasn't. We're still doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden 6,000 years ago. We, you know, we just have more sophisticated versions of it. We just have more sophisticated versions of it. That's exactly what Zacharias is saying here. We haven't evolved. We are still trying to be God. That's the whole point of this interview and why I loved it. Because Zach, what Zacharias is saying is without revelation, without that third party mediator between the, those who are debating morality or whatever else it is that we have uh, on earth, then we ourselves are trying to put ourselves in the place of God. And that is what's been going on since the beginning plain and simple that's exactly what Zacharias is saying here and it's profound and it's brilliant and I'm so glad he said it um, and he talks about redemption redemption preceding morality and that's a, uh, in well I don't even have the words for it Redemption has to... He's talking about law and gospel here. For us Lutherans. You Lutherans who listen to me out here. Ravi Zacharias is talking about law and gospel. We have to be redeemed. The means to... The means of our justification are the same means to our sanctification. That means grace alone, faith alone 
So if 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 we want to be lovers of God and lovers of neighbors, we have to be redeemed by God's means, which he lays out in Holy Scripture. Simple as that. Pretty interesting. Very interesting. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The means of justification are the means of sanctification. If we want to be better people, if we want to live live better lives, then we have to access the means of grace for sanctification and justification. All right, let's move on. Worldview, do you make a distinction between that which is sinful and that which you consider immoral? So this is a sort of deep philosophical issue in the religious community. Is there a difference between doing something that the Bible considers sinful and doing something that is moral on some sort of naturalistic level? The difference between hurting somebody else and, for example, engaging in a consensual behavior. This is obviously taking a modern example. Engaging in a consensual behavior that doesn't hurt a third party, per se, but maybe a sin against the natural law or a sin against the Bible. I think sin is a vertical term. It is not merely a horizontal term. When David sinned with what happened with Bathsheba and he falls on his face before God in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Nathan confronted him. Sin is a vertical thing. Morality can very easily become a horizontal term. And I think this is where we are getting uh, grounded literally and figuratively, Ben. When we only talk about a moral framework, if you go to uh, India today, moral reasoning is very different to that of, say, the moral reasoning of the West. And sin to me is a violation not of something abstract. It's a violation of a personal command. There is no sin in God. That means there's no contradiction in God. God is a self-existent being. It is impossible for him not to exist. He exists eternally. So if I am to be in keeping with that will of my heavenly Father, when the prodigal son returns, what does he say? I've sinned against heaven and against you. In that order, we take the vertical and make it horizontal. And you know, our moral struggle these days, Ben, to me, which is very deep, by the way, and if I may just digress for just a moment, I remember the first time I came to the West Coast. It was in the 70s. Okay, I was an undergraduate in Toronto at that time. And I have to say to you, yesterday as I walked through Los Angeles, this state is a microcosm of the collision course in which we are headed culturally. Probably one of the most beautiful states anywhere in the world. It's got the mountains, it's got the oceans, it's got the deserts, finest minds in this country, from cyber capacity to artistic splendor, all of this. And yet, what did I see yesterday as I walked? If you had taken me back to Calcutta 40, 50 years ago, I would have been walking past many homeless and thinking to myself, how are we gonna solve this problem? So what we have done in debunking the notion of sin and talking merely morality, we have ended up with a dead-end word that people really cannot relate to. In fact, if you want to end a discussion with a press reporter, just use the word sin. And that's it. So frankly, I like what you've done 
in your book. To me, when I'm talking to a person and they say to me, what do you think is wrong then? I say it's a violation of purpose. We have violated the purpose for which we have created. They can connect much more with that existential rub. And then, of course, they look at you and say, what do you mean by violation of purpose? I say, if you take a car and drown a muck in a crowd of people and kill them, can you blame General Motors for it? General Motors say, that's not why I fashioned this car. It was for transportation. So we've run amok in what we have done with our values, and then we blame the creator for it. So I think morality is good for civil coexistence, what Calvin talked about, the fourth use of the law type thing. But morality alone will not save this society unless we develop an accountability to our creator, not merely for moral reasoning, but for the recognition that life at its core is sacred. The desacralization of life is at the core of what has happened. We do not know what it means to be human. And in losing that definition, as Chesterton would say, we were our feet firmly planted in midair. Now, that's one of the best explanations I've heard, best analogies I've heard for why we shouldn't sin against God. He didn't design a thing like the illustration that Zacharias used. He did, General Motors didn't design a car to be driven through a crowd of people used as an instrument of death. That's not what the car was designed for. Similarly, what Shapiro is alluding to is, is homosexuality. And, and this is where I think he's, he's got a weakness. Yes, it's, it's a sin, but it's not merely a, a sin against God. And obviously, David's sin against Bathsheba was not only against God, even though to sin against another person is to sin against God. So that's, that's what, that's what uh, King David meant by that, was that he sinned only against God in, in the sense that when you do harm to another human being, you are ultimately sinning against God. That's the point. Homosexuality is, even even if it's consensual, <laughs> it's still a sin against that other person. When you sodomize somebody else, we've talked about this many times, that is a sin against that other person, whether they agree to it or not. If my wife agrees uh, for me to, to punch her because for some strange reason she likes it, that's still a sin against her, even if she agrees to it. It's not um, anything less than that. And so that's that's one place where I think, uh, I don't know if Shapiro's squeamish about it or not, but he, but he may just have never considered uh, why that sin is a sin. God, the second table of the law, the, the commandments dealing with our neighbor and how we are to love them, are, are practical morality. If you violate one of those, even though you might not see why it's a sin uh, or why it's harming that other person, that doesn't matter. Again, you know, go back to the illustration I used before. If, you know, if we somehow were able to transport a science book from, you know, a thousand years from now uh, and it told us this fact about science and just didn't make any sense to us. We didn't see why it was true. uh, But but yet when practiced. Uh, it, it works out on the ground, then, you know, that's that's the idea of having God's voice is sometimes God will say things that don't make sense to us. And the reason it doesn't make sense to us, it's not because he isn't clear about it. It's it's for two reasons. One, because of our of, of our fallen nature, we, we don't want to uh, be beholden to anybody else. We want to have complete autonomy and we want to do whatever we darn well please. 
That's really the simple fact of it. And so, therefore, when we go totally scripture and we look at something uh, that uh, it violates that autonomy, then, of course, we, we want to violate it. We we want to we want to say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says there. It means something differently and so on and so forth in order to maintain our, our own autonomy. That's our sin. That's how sin works. It's not that the scripture isn't clear. I like what Twain said about this is that it isn't what the, the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that scare me. It's the parts of the Bible that, that I do understand. See, now Twain's no Christian, but but he makes a salient point there. And I, I think that's exactly right. We see stuff in the Bible that are that's obviously clear and, and just violates, you know, it's like a child going to, to the parent saying, Dad, can I do this? And the dad knows that it's not going to be good for the child to do this. And therefore, he says no, and the child doesn't understand it and wants to twist his parents' words and, and do it anyway. So that that's part of it. The other piece of it is uh, that we, uh, we're, uh, we have, uh, you know, a lack of understanding. Just plain ignorance. So our sin and our ignorance cause the Bible to appear as if it's um, not understandable or can be interpreted in any way we we want to we want to interpret it. For instance, a good uh, example of this is this the, the whole notion of you know how harsh the penalties are uh, in, in the Old Testament for certain things like violating the Sabbath, or if if a parent so feels that their child is so rebellious that they can't control them, they can be taken to the authorities and and uh, stoned. However, when you look at the law codes of ancient Near Eastern, uh, other n- ancient Near Eastern civilizations, the Jewish theocracy is extremely civilized and in many cases revolutionary. Take, I've given this example before as well, take the notion of slavery in the Old Testament. It's nothing like what we had in the you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century in the West with chattel slavery. It's nothing like that. It, it's it's the notion of slavery, quote unquote, in the Old Testament is more like employment. It's it's uh, more like a welfare program if you really study it, um, and you really study and you have a, a a good working knowledge of ancient Near Eastern customs, which had had none of these things in place for somebody who uh, fell into the hands of of a slave owner. They they didn't have any of these uh, these provisions. There were there were no laws really about slaves, other than the laws that talked about them being property. So so the, the Jewish law code is extremely revolutionary and progressive it's it, it's it's a better model what is it the ideal model well no because the people weren't ready for an ideal model that's you know the, we get that idea from from christ in in the gospels and when he talks about divorce he, he says look um you know moses allowed you to divorce or give your wife a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart but now i say to you that's you know you need a new heart and that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to, to uh, die and rise again for the forgiveness of your sins and give you a new heart as, as, uh, as uh, the prophet Ezekiel talks about. And therefore, with the new heart, uh, the divorce thing is out. We've got to move past the, that old point where you guys were at, uh, where you had hardness of heart, and we had to, to make these weird laws to try to move you past uh, your own sin. See? And that's and that's really the two factors that, that come into play there, and so um, that's that's really where, where I'd like to see uh, even Shapiro come down a little more practically on something like homosexuality. I mean, just if you say you love another man, I've said this many many times. If you say you love somebody else, but then you proceed to sodomize them, that's that's not love. That is not the biblical definition of love. 
again, you know, just love everybody. That's okay, fine. Yeah, I agree. Let's love everybody. But what's your definition of love? To me, not to me, but according to Holy Scripture and to the voice of God, loving somebody does not include sodomizing him. Uh, it doesn't include punching them in the face, even if they want to be punched in the face. It doesn't include any of those things. In fact, those things are strictly forbidden. And so we take somebody who, you know, might proclaim to enjoy that or, or if, have, be attracted to things that are not good for them. And, you know, that's, uh, that's what mental health is about in a lot of ways. All right. So, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I, I appreciate Zacharias, uh, talking about, uh, this in, in that way, but I, I just don't hear Christians often enough talking about the sin of homosexuality in the way I just described. It has to be talked out, talked about that way. It's difficult, I understand, uh, but it, but it has to be. That, that's that's what finally made sense to me. I, I find you know that that's you know a number of years ago because I used to be completely in favor of it, but a number of years ago, finally somebody said, "Look, when we boil this right down to its to the brass tacks, you've got two men sodomizing each other, and the same thing with women. How can that be a good thing? How can that be loving?" And I it just hit me like a. I, like I walked into a brick wall, but, but we're at a place in our culture where these things have to be explained in those simple terms in order for them to be understood. Okay. Well, anyway, very, very good, um, helpful interview with Zacharias. I think one, that's one of the best Sunday specials I've seen, especially with a Christian. I thought Zacharias did an excellent job. He didn't, uh, dodge questions. didn't, uh, pander to, uh, Shapiro, like uh, some of the other Christians that have been on there have done. And so it was, uh, I thought all in all, very, very helpful interview. Just that, just that mild critique there at the end. Okay, well, there we go. We got a podcast in for this week, even if we did it old school style with no video. That's all right. Um, again, thank you to all of you listening on KNNA The Cross in Nebraska. Thank you to Steve Kozar and TheMessedUpChurch.com for including us uh, on their website. Also, don't forget to give to the Kenya Well Project $5, $10, $15 per episode or a one-time uh, gift of $50 or $500 if you're somebody who... Uh, yeah, really is into this. And we appreciate that donation. That was amazing. And we're, we're very thankful for it. Okay, we'll see you next week.